Shalom. This is Betty McKinney with Rick Bonfin Ministries, and here we are back in a couple of my favorite places just north of the Sea of Galilee. One reason that this is one of my favorite places is you can see behind me, it's empty. <laughs> Nobody's there. And those are the kind of places I love to go. I love to take groups where they are the hidden treasures, like, um, you know, well kept secrets. Hardly anybody knows about these places. There's no gift shops. <laughs> but what there is here is the ruins of an ancient town called Chorazin. Um, and if you remember me telling you from previous teachings, just north of the Sea of Galilee is an evangelical triangle, three cities, Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin. So Chorazin, what's here behind me, makes up the third city of this evangelical triangle where Jesus did most of his ministry, most of his miracles. Um, and what we come here to see is the impressive remains of this synagogue. That was the synagogue that was there during the time of Jesus. If you recall from our teaching in, in Capernaum, that synagogue in Capernaum is made of white limestone. It was built in the 4th century. It's not the synagogue that Jesus taught in and healed the man with the withered hand and so many stories we know from Capernaum. But this synagogue is the real deal. It is made of the black volcanic rock from the first century when Jesus was here. And something that is very impressive here in this synagogue <coughs> is what's called the Seat of Moses. Now the real Seat of Moses that archaeologists found in this synagogue is actually in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. It's that important. But they have reconstructed a replica of it so you can get a sense of the Seat of Moses. What's so important about that? Well, Jesus referenced it several times. It is a position of authority in the synagogue. And what I want to talk to you about here from this place of Chorazin, you're like, Betty, what, why do you go to this place? It's just a synagogue. It's a place where nobody goes. But it shows us something very important in the life of our Lord Jesus, how the synagogue played a major role in the life and the ministry of Jesus our Lord. So he references this seat of Moses, to which I just referred, in Matthew 23, verses 2 and 3. Um, I'll just start at the beginning of the chapter. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the seat of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. So Jesus made an, a point that this is a place of authority. Those who are the leaders seat them themselves in the seat of Moses. And you need to listen to the law that they teach. But also notice they themselves do not keep this law. They do not practice what they preach. Another place we see Jesus um, in the synagogue and the seat of Moses um, is pointed out again, is in Luke chapter 4. And this, is, this takes place in the synagogue in Nazareth. And in chapter 4, verse 20, I'm going to actually read this whole, whole um, 
section in a minute, but in verse 20 it says, And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Where did he sit down? On the seat of Moses. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. We know he sat on the seat of Moses because he was the reader of the scroll that day and the one who had the authority to be the speaker in the synagogue that day would have the honor of sitting on the seat of Moses. Now, a couple things you may or may not know about synagogues, that the front door of a synagogue is always to face Jerusalem. So as you travel around Israel and you visit different synagogues, both practicing ones and also historical ones like this one, they may be pointed this way or that way, depending on which direction they are situated in relation to Jerusalem. Um, and I've told you this before also. The synagogue wasn't just a place to come once a week and have a worship service. It was the cultural center. It was the community center of the village or the town. It was the places where families gathered. It was where children were usually educated. And it's where the teachers of the law and the learned men of the city would get together and debate the scripture, <laughs> debate the law. <clears throat> So the teachers of the law would, as Jesus did in Luke 4, stand when there was a gathering of people, read the scripture, you know, open the scroll out. It wasn't a book like we have today in chapters. It was a scroll that they would unroll and they would read it and then they would take their seat on the seat of Moses. So this happened to Jesus when he returned to his hometown in Nazareth. And I'm going to read a few verses here starting with verse 16 of Luke 4 and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read this is no small thing and this is my point that I want to talk to you about during this teaching Jesus had a relationship with the synagogue it was part and parcel of his entire life to be in a synagogue and take part in all the activities that would happen in the city synagogue. Verse 17, And the books of the prophet Isaiah was handing, handed to him, or the scroll, would be a, a better translation, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Remember, it was a place of authority. You listen to whoever reads and then sits on the seat of Moses. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And if you know the story, you know what happened to him after that. He, <laughs> he moved from the seat of Moses to being nearly pushed off a cliff because they didn't like what he had to say after that from his seat of authority. But let's just, let's just be here. When I bring a group here, I just urge them to walk around and just get the sense, get the aura of being in this synagogue and just remember that Jesus spent a lot of time in synagogues just like this. He was a student 
of God's word. He wasn't just the son of man. He wasn't just the son of God who who just appeared. And some people think that Jesus as a baby just received a download with all of knowledge of scripture already packaged in him. But that's not so. Jesus studied the scripture. As a little boy, he went to school in the synagogue at Nazareth. And every day he he learned in that yeshiva or that Hebrew school along with the other little boys. By the age of 12, during Jesus' time, by the age of 12, a Jewish boy was expected to have memorized the first five books of the Bible, a whole Torah written by Moses. So um, Jesus was a student of God's word. And that um, shows up in Luke 2. We find him at age 12, standing in the midst of the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Where did that happen? In the temple in Jerusalem. His parents had gone up for the feast. They were headed back home to Nazareth. They kind of All their relatives were together, headed back down the road, so they weren't too worried that they hadn't seen Jesus for a while because he was probably with his cousins, back, you know, with the kids. And they realized, we haven't seen Jesus for a while. Where's Yeshua? <laughs> he isn't with us. And they go all the way back to Jerusalem. They go up to the temple. And in um, Luke 2, starting with verse 45, <clears throat> And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for them. And it came about that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said, Son, why have you treated us this way? Your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? So there he is in the temple, listening and asking questions that these teachers of the law were stumped, couldn't couldn't answer. So that just shows us how well versed in scripture Jesus was, that he could discuss and debate the meaning of the scripture with teachers far advanced in age. It says, all who heard him, verse 47, were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And if we read through the Gospels and we look closely at the ministry of Jesus, we find him frequently quoting the scripture as he was teaching. You hear him say phrases like, have you not read? Do you not know? Referring to what the scripture says. Another time when the scripture is seen to be the scripture that he learned in synagogues like like this, um, we see him out in the wilderness when the spirit led him in the wilderness to be tempted of the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. He was harassed and harangued by by the devil, by the enemy, night and day with every temptation, every lie, every distortion, every oppression that you can imagine. Anything you have ever felt come against you from the evil one, Jesus felt during those 40 days and 40 nights. He withstood a constant barrage of everything the devil could throw at him. How did Jesus handle that? How did Jesus handle the devil harassing him for 40 days and 40 nights? 
Did he argue with him? Did he debate? Did he, did he try to somehow reason and bargain with him? Yes, but, but, he said, it is written. It is written. And if we had more time, we could look through that in Luke chapter 4 and see the ways the devil came at him this way and that way and this way. <clears throat> and there's recorded there three different discourses of many where he just answered the devil with the word of God. It is written. He had this word of God in his heart. He had it ready in his mouth when he needed it. I often I tell people, you know, if, if somebody breaks in your house and they're threatening your family, you don't have time to run down to the basement, find the key to the gun lock, um, your cabinet where your guns are, open it, find your gun, get out the ammunition and load it. You're dead by then. <laughs> you have to have it locked and loaded by your bed. You need the scripture in your heart and in your mouth ready to go when the enemy comes against you. And that's exactly what Jesus did. God revealed himself to Jesus as he grew and as he came into his ministry. He revealed himself through the Holy Spirit who was constantly with Jesus leading him, but also through the word, the scripture. Always the two must work together in our lives. We must find that balance of being led and and receiving revelation by the Holy Spirit, but that always lines up and is coupled together with the Word of God. And Jesus exemplifies that for us in his life and in his ministry. When he comes to the end of his ministry, in Acts 17, he's praying for his disciples. Remember the famous prayer of Jesus in, did I say Acts? I meant John. John 17. Remember that famous prayer of Jesus and in John 17:8, he's not only praying for his disciples who are there, he's praying for us because he says he's praying for all those who believe through their word, and that's you and me. And in verse um, 8, 17:8, for the words which thou gavest me, Jesus speaking to his Father, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from thee, and they believed that thou didst send me. The words which thou gavest me, I gave them. Jesus, the word, gave them the word of God. Um, after his resurrection, this is, this is just such a great story. Again in Luke, Luke gives us so many great insights into the, to the life of Jesus and especially his relationship with the scripture, his relationship with the word. He is, this is after his resurrection, and you may recall this, on the road to Emmaus, which heads out west of Jerusalem between Jerusalem and what is now Tel Aviv, or Jaffa. There's two disciples walking along, and suddenly Jesus appears, and in, they don't, don't know who he is. He said, they say to him, it's, it's, it's humorous, are you the only one that doesn't know all the things that have been going on? <laughs> Where have you been? And then in verse um, 27 of Luke 24, And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He explained the scriptures, how they all pointed to him. So, 
our, I think I've made my point, (laughs) our Lord Jesus had a relationship with the Word of God. He submitted himself to the Scripture. He obeyed the Scripture. He trusted the Scripture. He imparted the Scripture to others. And if Jesus, our Lord, loved the Word of God and knew it and used the Word of God so much in his ministry, what does that say to us? We need the Word of God, just like he did. Amen? So that's the lesson of this lovely little place, Chorazine in the Galilee. Now we're going to move on. This is a two-for-one day. We're going to go to one of my other favorite places, just above the Sea of Galilee. You go to a place called Peter's Primacy, that little beach we visited there, I think on maybe our second installment of this series, where Jesus... um, reinstated Peter to his ministry. You cross the highway above Peter's primacy, you climb up the hill a little bit, and you come to this wonderful place. It's called the Aramos Cave. Um, You can... I don't know what it looked like 2,000 years ago in Jesus' time. Erosion has probably made it a lot smaller. You know, it's it's washed dirt down, so it's a lot smaller now than it used to be. But I love going to this spot because Jesus, he spent a lot of time in the Galilee on foot. And as you walk around the hills above the Sea of Galilee, you know that Jesus knew every nook and cranny of this area. He knew every cave. He knew every hill. He knew where to get away. (laughs) When he needed to get away from the crowds, when he needed to get away from the pressing mob, um, he knew places, he knew hiding places up there around the Sea of Galilee. And this very cave could have been one of his, just by its location and uh, events we see happen in Capernaum and there along the shore, the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, events would happen. And then we say, we see over and over in Scripture, over 33 times in the Gospels, it says, Jesus would often slip away to a lonely place to pray. That's what eremos means. Eremos in Greek means solitary, lonely, or quiet. 33 times plus in the Gospels we read Jesus would slip away to a solitary place, a lonely place, an eremos place. Um, Luke 5.16 is just one of those. But Jesus, Jesus often withdrew to lonely Eremos places and prayed. He would go there, places like this cave, to commune with his father, to be strengthened by him. Sometimes he would invite his disciples, let's come away. Let's come away to an Eremos, a lonely place. Let's go pray. Before he chose his first 12 disciples, before he went around and called them from whatever they were doing, fishing or sitting in a tax collector's booth or whatever. We see him praying just before he goes out to choose his disciples because he's being led in everything he does by his Father and by the Holy Spirit revealing to him. So just as we, in our former place, Chorazin, saw how important studying and knowing the Scripture was to Jesus, how much of a discipline that was in his life, Another aspect that was so important in the life of Jesus was his life of prayer. Knowing he had 
to get away. He couldn't just constantly be healing all day long. He couldn't be teaching all day long. He couldn't just be doing ministry and seeing needs all day long. He had a very high priority of going away to refresh and recharge himself in his father and hear from him, what's my next move, father? Where am I to go next? What would I? What am I supposed to do with this situation? Um, <clears throat> the most excruciating night the world has ever known took place in a lonely place, the Garden of Gethsemane, on the Mount of Olives. Jesus was there praying and asking, not my will, Father, but yours be done. So this was a habit, this was a discipline that was so important in the life of our Lord. Um, If you go to Israel with me, I I always do a study guide and try to show you in the scripture, you know, why we're visiting this place, what what validity it has in the scripture. I have a bazillion (laughs) references to times when Jesus went away, goes away to pray by himself or says to his disciples or maybe just to the three, Peter, James, and John, Come on, let's get out of here. Let's go to a lonely place. So let's look at one day in the prayer life of Jesus that we find recorded in Mark 6. Mark 6. Um, John the Baptist, his cousin, his dear friend, had just been beheaded in the most cruel and just disgusting manner. His head, you know, served up on a platter to Herodias. Um, so Mark 6, 27 is where we can begin through verses 32. Um, and this, this talks about John the Baptist. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. And when this, when Jesus' disciples heard about this, oh, I'm sorry, when John's, disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. And the apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a lonely place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. And they went away in the boat to a lonely, eremos place by themselves. So, as I said, John was Jesus' cousin. They grew up together as boys. If there was anyone that was close to Jesus besides John the Beloved, it was John the Baptist. Um, Jesus loved John. And when he heard this horrible account of what had happened to John, he had to be mourning, right? He had to be grieving. He had to be trying to cope with this news. Because he was not just 50% God and 50% human. He was 100% God, 100% human. With the same emotions and love that we have for someone we love dearly. So he hears this brutal account and he said, I I just have to get away from the population. Let's go to a lonely place. Um, Also, he knew the politics of the day. John had been kind of like the Billy Graham of the day. And the crowds were always wanting to make him king. And um, 
Jesus knew well the politics. They always wanted to find somebody popular that the people were following, make him king so they could throw off the oppression of Rome, right? Jesus knew now they were going to be coming after him. <laughs> he was next in line. we got to find somebody that the people like, that's the people's person, that's popular, and make him king so that we can revolt against Rome. The crowds were already stirred up about the miracles they had heard about Jesus doing. They were already talking about making him king. Um, he knew that he was next on the list also with Herod Antipas. If he had done that to John, Jesus knew he was probably next on the hit list. So he knew that he had a lot to deal with um, politically, just with the people and their whole attitudes and their agendas. And the only one he could talk to about these things was his father. He just had to go and get his head centered, his heart centered in his father and what he had come to do. Amen? So he said, come, let's go away. And they went in the boat to a lonely place by themselves. And if you know the gospel story, what happens next? The crowds come and crash his time. He needed that time to mourn. He needed that time to just hear from his father in this politically charged environment. But the crowds crashed his time of being alone. And he could have just said, go away, I can't take it now. But he had compassion on, him, on them. The scripture says he had compassion on the multitudes who kept following him. And he taught them and then he and the disciples ended up um, experiencing the miracle of five loaves of bread and two fish being multiplied to feed 5,000 men and maybe 10,000 women and children, maybe 15,000 to 20,000 people. So picking this up in verse um, 45, it says, this is after the miracle of the multiplication, and immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the multitude away. And after bidding them farewell, he departed to the mountain to pray. That's why I love to go to these places. You're up there on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, and you just see these little caves and these little lonely places, and you can think, maybe that's, that's where Jesus went at this time. You can just visualize it. The scripture just comes alive when you're in a little out-of-the-way place like this cave we discovered just above Peter's primacy. And when it was evening, I guess that's, we don't need to read the rest. This is, you know, what happens. They're out on the boat like he told them to. A storm comes up and um, he ends up walking on the water out to them. But he knew that the people were going to come and try to make him king by force. He sends after the multiplying of the bread, that's still just another high in his ministry. More news is going to spread everywhere about Jesus. He sends them away and he says, I have to go pray. I have to go talk with my father. What does this teach us about life? What did Jean Thomas say to us today? Even when things are going well, they're gonna, something's going to go wrong. Is that what he said this morning, Pastor Kelly? Something like that. Even when things are going right, 
they're going to go wrong. <laughs> so this wonderful thing had just happened, the multiplication, but Jesus knew probably something's going to go wrong now. I'm even more famous. <laughs> and his response was, I've got to get to be with my father. He sets an example for us when pressing situations come upon us, when we're not sure where to turn next because the pressure is so great and there's so many agendas and voices all around us. In a crisis, what did Jesus do? He prayed. He found a lonely place and he prayed. Uh, We can only imagine the discourse he had with his father that night in one of these caves up there. After he spends six or more hours in prayer, then he comes walking on the water to his disciples and calms the storm. Um, He didn't calm that storm out of his depletion. He calmed it out of the power he gained as he spent six hours with his father. Do you see that? Jesus had to go recharge just like we do. He had just done this amazing miracle of feeding the 5,000. The next thing that we see happen is that he comes walking on the water and he calms the storm. But where did he get the power over nature? He got it from his Father by the Holy Spirit, but power had gone out of him. He had to recharge his battery, so he had power for the next miracle. The disciples still don't understand where his power comes from. They're still confused by this. But as they spend time with him, they begin to see this habit of their Lord, this discipline that in between these incredible acts, you find Jesus off somewhere in a solitary Aramos place. And as he ended his ministry, we find him in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke 22, um, verses 40 through 46. We find him in a garden praying. His last act of ministry before going to um, the cross to be arrested for, for being arrested and then going to before Pilate and going to the cross was to spend all night in prayer with his father. Um, so the disciples, they finally were getting it. You know, after three and a half years of following him around and miracle after miracle, they were seeing that he had this habit, he had this discipline. And they finally realized, wow, Lord, prayer is really important in your life. See, all they knew was Jewish rituals. They were good Jewish boys. They knew how to say, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Malek HaAlam before a meal, and they knew how to say all the ritualistic prayers. But they saw something much deeper in terms of prayer between Jesus and his Father. And we see them come to him in Luke 11, 1, and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. Right? They're, they know how to pray. They're Jewish boys. They know how to, there's a prayer for everything. But they're talking about something different. You commune with your father. Power comes out of that. Those times you spend with him, you give it priority. And then we see what the result of that is. Teach us your secret. How, how do we pray? We call this the Lord's Prayer, but really, you know, I've heard people say it really should be called the Disciples' Prayer because he is teaching them 
Well, here's, here's an example. When I go to be with my father, here are the kinds of things I say to him. And he gives us some advice, uh, kind of a, a, a pattern to follow. Father, <clears throat> our father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So, if you were one of his disciples and you lost track of Jesus um, and you didn't know where he was, chances are you could probably find him off in one of his little nooks and crannies praying somewhere. How did Judas know where to find him on the night he betrayed him? When Jesus was in Jerusalem, he would often escape the city to pray in the Aramos, the lonely place. And in a certain garden called Gethsemane, or oil press, on the Mount of Olives, was one of his places of prayer when he was in Jerusalem. And that's how Judas knew exactly where to find him that night. You ever thought about that? (laughs) So I'm going to end with Psalm 5, 1 through 3. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God. For to thee do I pray. In the morning, O Lord, thou wilt hear my voice. In the morning I will order my prayer to thee and eagerly watch. For Jesus' prayer was a time of listening. It was a time when the Father spoke to him and gave him direction. It was a time when the Holy Spirit refreshed him and strengthened him. Who was more busy, more tired, more oppressed, more sought after and bothered than Jesus? We might say, oh, I just don't have time for a prayer life. But who had more pressure than Jesus? What was his response? I've got to go pray. I can't, I can't do this without it. I don't have time not to pray. So I just want to encourage you to think about this little simple cave. Just picture our Lord and the precious moments he spent in places like this. Do you feel like you're too busy and pressed to have a real prayer life? Take a a look at the life of Jesus and ask the Holy Spirit to convict you, to draw you to an Aramos place that he will show you that fits in your life. If Jesus needed this kind of prayer in order to do his Father's will, do you think you and I might need a greater commitment to just take those times to be alone with the Lord? Your will be done, not my will, Lord. What are you trying to teach me in this storm, in this pressure? Give me the power, Lord, to do the right thing and get through. Thank you, Jesus, for teaching us these lessons by the way you lived your human life with the word of God and a life of prayer. Be blessed today. We'll see you next time in the footsteps of Jesus. Shalom.